Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business is Unusual, a series produced by Curian Consulting. My name is Aisela, and I am really delighted to be here with Catherine Cronin-Miller talking about a better place to work. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to talk to you because I think so many we spend so much time at work, so making sure that it's actually a better place feels like a great idea. Before we dive into that, what is a hobby of yours that you think would surprise surprise folks? Yeah, it's this interesting question. I feel like I'm such a transparent person. It would take a lot to surprise people that I know, but. I do usually keep a really wonderful garden. All my neighbors know me for it. And this time of year, my seedlings are growing and I'm getting ready to put them in the ground. And it's just something really healing about that too, right? Watching the little plants grow and the little seeds grow. I get my kids into it. And then we enjoy the garden all summer and really into the fall before it frosts. Love that. Love gardening, love being outside, all those pieces. It's also really healthy for you to get your hands in the dirt. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what is a better place to work, your business, because you can also talk about a better place to work in other ways, too. But let's start with your business. Yeah, yeah. And really, they should be the same thing, hopefully. Yeah, my consulting company is Better Place to Work. I started the company that turned into a better place to work in 2021 during the pandemic. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been in the nonprofit and public sectors since 2005. And I got to a point in my career where I was really in administration, wasn't doing direct service anymore. And I would see the same problems at every agency I was at and hear about them from colleagues and friends that were at different agencies. And to be fair, I think this happens across sectors. I know this happens across sectors. So there's nothing unique about the nonprofit sector when it comes to employee engagement and the things that my company deals with. But we do have maybe a higher propensity for burnout and vicarious trauma in the work. And the problems that I were seeing that were fairly universal were that in the social sector, we are running really fast. We are trying to solve very serious community problems. We take them very seriously, so we have big goals, and we start to see cracks along the way. Routinely, I would hear management doesn't know what's happening on the ground, senior management, that is. There would be tension and conflict on teams. People leave supervisors. They leave bosses. They don't leave jobs. That old adage is still true. And for me, I love the social sector. I believe in the work that we're doing. And I'm so passionate about it. And for that reason, I'm passionate about the people that work in it, right? So I know that if we can change our leadership styles and the way that we engage our employees, it's really win-win, three wins, right? When we fully engage our staff, they typically feel, but not always, but typically they feel better at work. They enjoy the work more. Their satisfaction typically increases. and their performance increases. So our clients are receiving better services. The community receives better services. Our outcomes go up. 
right? And when those things happen, the agency's bottom line benefits, we protect our budget, right? So truly this work is win. And I think it's a little bit antithetical. We can get into what is employee engagement and what are the kind of theories that and sort of the operationalization of the theories. How do we actually do this work? And when I talk to new leaders about this, the first time there might be a little bit of deer in headlights because it's so antithetical to very traditional styles of management and leadership that many of us have seen and are familiar with. But slowly but surely, we're getting the Brene Browns of the world teaching us that there is a different way. And this is now backed by a ton of research, organizational psychology research, business research, across sectors, across countries, across cultures. So we know this stuff really works. So those are the theories that my company sounded on. And then what I do is I offer individual coaching. I do some group coaching as well. And then consulting projects where we'll do full assessments for social sector organizations, come up with action plans and support implementation around organizational culture, employee performance, conflict management. And then we do a lot of training. I actually was just I do trainings probably three days a week. I'm always training folks on topics related to employee engagement, trauma-informed care, equity and inclusion, conflict management, boundaries in the workplace, all of that stuff that carries trauma. So that is my business. That's a lot of information. I have a bunch of questions. I'll start with this one because I think it will lead into the rest of them. And if not, I will ask more follow-up questions. What is unusual about the way that you approach employee engagement and understanding how to make a better place to work for people. Yeah. So this has been my experience. And I'm going to disclose my age here. This is my 40th birthday year. I'm turning 40 this year. So I'm one of the older millennials. And I think that's important because I do think there are some generational differences in the workplace that show up, right? So just wanting to say that from the outset. What I have found in my experience is that Many social sector organizations are still being run, are being run by baby boomers and Gen Xs. And if you think about, you go back in time, when those folks were coming onto the scene as professionals, getting their first jobs, rising into the ranks, right? The predominant models of leadership were very traditional. We weren't talking about mental health. We weren't talking about vulnerability in the workplace right? Those things were not on the table. So the traditional models of leadership that I often see, really, let's think of this as an analogy with parenting, because there is, I really think there's something here. I have seen research that shows a correlation between people's political affiliation and their parenting strategies. And that does not surprise me at all. If you think about even like a government program like TANF or cash aid, right? Our beliefs around who should have those things. And then is it more of a tough love? Pull yourself up, right? Or is it we can continue to provide this for you and it's a softer approach? And so the same thing with parenting styles. I would say it would shock me if there was not also a correlation between parenting style and management style. I think of these things, they have a lot of similarities in terms of the kind of the theory behind it of what do we think we're doing to support people. So the traditional styles of management, I think, really emphasize the hierarchy, 
for good reason. They emphasize certain types of power. So if I am the CEO of an organization, I have a lot of responsibility and therefore I have a lot of power. And in traditional styles of leadership, it would have been really strange for folks at the bottom of that organization to provide feedback directly to a senior administrative team. We're learning now through the research that it's actually really important for senior administrators to directly hear from folks on the front lines, right? We know that's true. And there's something I can't probably quite describe the way it would feel because it's very individualized, but I'm going to use the word threat. I think if you're used to a traditional style of leadership, it can feel a little threatening to feel that suddenly you need to take feedback from folks who don't have the same information or knowledge as you. You're at a certain level of the organization. Your scope of knowledge is broader or different, right? So you have a strategic vision. You're looking at things like budget. You're looking at your strategic plan. You're looking at your board. You're looking at all these different factors that folks who might be taking intake calls in the organization, they're thinking of that. But we know that if we do things like take feedback at every level of the organization and build trusting positive relationships primarily between supervisors and supervisees so that direct relationship is of utmost importance but also with senior management does your average employee trust senior management do they feel they have integrity do they feel like they're in touch with and value the opinions of clients of staff members we know when we work on those things performance goes up so it's a little of a mind bender for a lot of the folks that I've worked with because it's like for performance to go up in a traditional model, it's like we need structure. We need, right? We need to tell people what to do. They need to have parameters. We need to hold them accountable. I am your manager. I am holding you accountable. I am going to complete this performance evaluation. I'm going to evaluate you. You don't evaluate me. I evaluate you. The new style, which would include all of these elements of employee engagement would say it's actually really important in a performance review for a manager to say, what feedback do you have for me? What do you need from me to be, excuse me, to be successful in your role? The theories of employee engagement that we are now seeing backed by all this research tell us that, hey, we have to do this a little different. I know as a leader in the past, you might have thought, listen, we need structure, we need accountability, we need to push people harder so they achieve. And now we know if you're doing those things and it's outside of the container of trust, the phrase I use, it's not going to work. Their performance is not going to go up and your turnover is going to continue to increase. So it's a little bit antithetical, right? We got to slow down in order to speed up and see the results we want. And that's what I think is a little bit unusual or different about what I'm doing and I think the science of employee engagement. I actually really appreciate the the distinction there of the container of trust. And I when you were talking about that from the perspective of people being threatened, I also really related to what I've seen occur, which is the fear of loss of control. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that fear of loss of control is because the person is a controlling person. Most of the time I feel like it's more they have a feeling responsibility to achieve things. And they're afraid that if they're not like on top of everything, 
because it's it when we right, when we talk about trust it has to be both ways and i think that it can be scary for people to to trust that a sort of the i don't know how to describe it in terms of the manager or the leader it's trusting the folks that are working yeah not just to do their job but also to approach them when they are stuck or need support because the trust is about that exchange right if i if I have a good relationship with my boss or the person I'm working with, I don't feel scared to ask them questions, right, to make sure that I can get stuff done. But if I'm feeling like I have to perform or prove something, I might not tell them things, which I think is also an indica- like an older style and the hierarchy thing. I don't tell people what you don't know because then they might not think you're good enough or something. But this right. feels like there's a lot more mutual trust that needs to be built. And with that exact, the last example you gave, I would even, I would add to it. I would say a lot of times we withhold information from our supervisees for good reason. It might be for them, right? If you're about to go through a big merger, it would be very irresponsible to just share preemptively information with the whole organization when you don't know how it's actually going to influence people yet. And I don't think it's wrong for folks to, I guess what I'm saying is you can still have boundaries, right? Yeah. It doesn't require what I think of as employee engagement. There is a sense of you're coaching me then to just give up all of my power. And that's actually not true at all. When we do this work really well, we are coaching you into harnessing that power and being even more effective in your leadership because people trust you and they're willing to work harder, right? They are on board, but it does require you to also engage in more of a give and take. So it doesn't mean you give up your boundaries. You still have boundaries. And there's still a hierarchy for good reason, right? We each have a role within the organization. And it's really important that we focus on our specific tasks and do them really well. For efficiency's sake, right? For our systems and our processes to work well, we need to have that. I'm not promoting flat organizations at all. So that's maybe one of the biggest misconceptions around employee engagement in this work is that Sometimes when we operationalize it and we start to dive into the nitty gritty, people will think, oh, gosh, Catherine, are you telling me that now you're saying and take feedback? I need to hear from people at all levels of my organization. Are you saying that we should all be running this together like a collective? No, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Certainly, there are organizations that do that well, but I think hierarchy can be a good thing. It's more about how do we ensure that we are promoting. And there's really three basic drivers of employee engagement. And we need to focus on each of those three things and find ways to foment them within our teams. And I could get into that. (laughs) Then we could spend another 30 minutes talking about it. We probably should at least name them. But I think that's the biggest misconception, right? Is that people will say, oh, I'm having to give up my power. No, if you do this really well, it does require you to listen, like actively listen to folks and really care about your staff and what their perspective is and know that they are an expert in their own role. Just like you're the expert at whatever role you are in, whether that's the CEO or the CAO or even program manager, program director, right? You have from your lens what's happening. But someone who's a case manager, they know what their clients are saying. And you don't hear that information every day, right? Right. So if you make a process change, it might influence the clients, but you won't hear it unless you're actively seeking that information. Right. 
there's a lot of these pieces that kind of roll up together. Would you like me to go into the factors of employee engagement? Uh, yes, let's do that. That's I was a little bit waiting. So please okay. actually do that. Yes. <laughs> so we can get into it and operationalize. How do we drive employee engagement? So first of all, I should define engagement. So I think of engagement in the workplace as using your head, hands, and heart, investing your whole self in the work. So if you've ever been in a meeting or a session or a, whatever it is that you do at work every day, you've ever been in a project doing something at work and you totally lost track of time. Mm -hmm. You are fully engaged in that moment. So some people call it the red threads of your job. Some people will call it flow, right? There's all these different words to describe. Really, there's a similar concept, which is engagement. When we are fully engaged, we are so passionate about what we're doing that the work doesn't actually feel like work. And we invest our whole selves in it. When we're fully engaged, our performance skyrockets. And we're much more likely to be proactive in solving challenges or problems, offer solutions. We engage in what's called citizenship behaviors. So like those kind, lovely things to do in the workplace, the little bit of extras, those things happen when people are fully engaged. How do you then drive engagement, right? Because if that's the goal of this style of leadership that Better Place to Work is promoting, right? How do we drive engagement? There's three factors that drive engagement. And this comes from a researcher named Khan in 1990, put out this first paper and has been replicated many times. I should say, disclaimer, there's probably not 100% agreement in the business literature on this, but I think there's enough agreement that a lot of people have picked up these ideas, including big companies like Gallup. And so the three factors. First one is psychological meaningfulness. Psychological meaningfulness is your reason to engage at work. Your reason to engage. So this is most clearly, do you have a connection to the impact? In the social sector, we're always talking about mission, right? We want to drive for the mission. So do you see how your role and what you're doing on a daily basis, do you see how that connects to the mission? Do you mm. see the impact you're having? And... For a lot of our social sector clients, they're like, oh, yes, this is very evident. Mm. Might not be if you work in accounts payable. Right. It may not be if you are, let's say you're a client-facing staff member. So a case manager, a therapist, a navigator, something like that. Very common titles in the sector. Let's say you're a health navigator. Mm. I think it would be easy to assume that, oh, you have a direct connection to the mission. You see the impact of your work. But if it doesn't feel that way to the staff member because of the pace of the work, they don't have time to really think about what they're doing and be creative with it. They're just doing the exact same thing over and over with every client that comes through. They might start to feel like they're just the hamster on the wheel and that they're not actually having an impact. Mm -hmm. So we would be getting away from that sort of meaningfulness. This is also about staff having a certain level of challenge Think of this as like a big, juicy burger. We want your job to be something you can bite your teeth into, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to be enough of a challenge. And then it has to have some space for creativity. I don't mean like just drawing and writing or painting. I don't mean that kind of creativity, maybe if you're an artist. But I mean, right, like creativity of thought, creativity in how I do this, autonomy in how I do this. Right. So all of those factors impact 
the meaningfulness. It, it needs to be a reciprocal relationship. Whatever I put in, I'm also getting back. I'm seeing the impact of my work. Right. Any questions on that piece? No, that's really, I think that's really true for a lot. I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I do feel like it's true for a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. The second one is psychological safety. A lot of folks have heard this term before, right? So psychological safety refers to your ability to bring your whole self to work and be free from bias, harassment, discrimination, right? Freedom to be free of fear in the workplace. Gone are the days where we say, check your baggage at the door. That is simply not possible. And the only thing we were telling people when we said that was that part of you is not welcome at work, Mm -hmm. right? You don't literally forget that you're a parent or that you have a sick dog or that your car is broken down. You don't literally forget that you can't pay your bills or you have to move and pack everything up next weekend or whatever. You don't you don't actually have the ability. You can compartmentalize, which is what people do. Mm-hmm. But the approach that we would look at now with psychological safety is creating really high trust relationships where people have some predictability and they feel that they're going to get fair treatment at work. Mm-hmm. And that includes bringing your whole self. So a lot of equity and inclusion work here. Am I masking? Am I code switching constantly? How much mental time and energy am I putting into hiding parts of myself that I don't feel are welcome. Mm-hmm. So psychological safety is a really big one. And it's for me, it's underneath. These are all drivers of engagement. But this one in our current day and age is, it's just so paramount, right? Mm-hmm. And our younger generations are demanding, even with things like mental health and the way in which we can openly talk now. Our Gen Zers are coming in and they're just openly talking about their mental health in the workplace in a way that is shocking their older colleagues. That's something that used to be considered private or personal. You didn't admit that you had a mental health challenge in the workplace. And now we are rethinking those rules. Right. And that speaks to psychological safety. The last driver is psychological availability. And this is your capacity to engage fully in the work. So I want you to think about distractions, and that could be professional distractions or personal distractions. So if I have a lot of stuff going on outside the home, if I'm, let's say, having surgery and healing from that and coming back to work slowly, if I am going through a divorce, right? If I have cancer, these are the things that happen every day to people who have jobs and work for us. And so those are personal and the word is distractions. There's probably a different word, but they do take some of our mental energy. And the idea behind psychological availability is that we only have so much space available at any one given time in our brains. It's malleable, but there's only so much space. I can't make the space bigger. And I tell people to think about a cup of water that's Mm -hmm. already halfway full at any given moment. And then we're pouring stuff into it. So maybe these personal circumstances are some of the water that we're pouring in, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe there's professional circumstances that we're pouring in. So that stuff is like toxic relationships at work, 
tension between colleagues, conflict between colleagues, a lack of trust between colleagues that shows up in really problematic ways. Have you ever been in a team meeting Mm -hmm. where you're like, what is going on there? And everyone else is this vibe. right it rubs off on everyone and then Mm -hmm. we're spending time with the drama and the gossip and all of that right so we're just adding water to the cup we're adding water to the cup and then there's also a couple other pieces here first of all do they have training to do the job that they're being asked to do Mm -hmm. because if not there's a big gap in terms of their capacity to engage in the work and then the last thing i would add here is imposter syndrome as really a unique category, right? So it's our confidence related to the work. My capacity to do the job is in part related to my confidence because I might actually have the training I need, but I may be terrified to do it. Mm. And as someone who's trained a lot of young therapists, I'll tell you that it's just a really common thing that imposter syndrome is real. We feel like, who am I to be in this role? I'm a new manager. Right. Who am I to be telling other people I do this? All of that goes into availability. So you see these drivers of engagement, right? We've got our psychological meaningfulness, our reason to engage. We have to be really clear on the reason to engage. For the record, we have to actually know what our job is very clearly if we have to understand how it, how it relates to the impact, right? So right. we have role creep. Your job description looked one way when you took the job and six months later, it's different. We got to clarify that. We got to be really clear on what your role is. So the meaningfulness, psychological safety, and then psychological availability. What's your capacity to fully engage? And if we do all those things and we're driving for those, right. again, performance is going to increase. Outcomes are going to increase. The but, model. And what I see in that too is it's a shift from fear-based motivation to support or encouragement-based motivation. If I'm afraid in yeah. my that like that... The psychological safety piece. So it's like, instead of saying, keep it away, don't accidentally fall apart. You're afraid of showing vulnerability. Like, no, it's okay to be vulnerable. Let's talk about how this works or however that goes. I would agree with you. I would say probably over the last 15 years, there's been much more emphasis for managers on the coaching mindset and driving Mm -hmm. performance through coaching. But this really encapsulates that because of the psychological safety piece. But also with some of the availability pieces and it's all of it. I would say that we know that when people can bring their whole selves to work and they feel safe, they're going to have more mental capacity to focus on the work and they're going to feel more welcome in the workplace, right? And they're, if they're more likely to be engaged, their performance is going to increase. They're going to take on extra things, right? Those. Mm -hmm citizenship behaviors, all of it. But so often, again, why is this unusual? So often we think as managers, I have got to tell this person to lock that down. They are distracted. They are bringing their distractions into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to increase performance, the old way would say, I need to set these firm boundaries and tell them this is not okay. Right now, I'm not suggesting you throw all the boundaries and expectations away. Right. Firm opposite of that, right? What we are saying is, listen, it's actually really important that employees have that trust where they know if they're having an awful day, because it doesn't matter how you respond to it all that much here, right? 
Right. If someone's had, if someone's dealing with a circumstance, they're dealing with the circumstance. So you can tell them it's not okay to bring it into the workplace, but that's impossible. If I'm, if I'm a new parent and I'm just readjusting after a maternity leave, again, it does matter from the employee engagement standpoint of how you respond to it, but it doesn't matter in terms of, I still have to bring it with me. It's everywhere I go. I, I would say the same thing about conflict. Workplaces, should and do have conflicts, just like anything else, whether it's a conflict about what pizza are we ordering for the pizza party or something more serious around strategic goals or budget or whatever. And when we embrace and just let it be okay and then focus on how are we getting through it in a way that hopefully builds trust, right? Because right. you can use conflict to build trust and have stronger outcomes in the end on your teams. So it's a little bit of using these drivers of engagement as the underlying, the core. And you'll know that if you do this really well, it's paying off in the long run because you're creating these containers of trust where people feel heard and valued. And then off they go, right? And they're able to really fully have more space for what they're doing professionally. No, that makes a ton of sense. And it's all, it seems intuitive in some ways that, I, and I, it, I don't know, like I get that it's not always if you've, if you have a preconceived notion about how a business needs to go. And I, I can out myself in this way that when I first started in the nonprofit world a long time ago, man, I was just like, this is so inefficient and it's ridiculous. You have to talk to 73 people. I really became a hugely committed to the process because once I understood that it was actually collaborative, and it's tricky to explain that balance between you're still holding space, you still have responsibility, you still have accountability. And if you can work in community and collaboration with people effectively, what you can achieve is so much more impactful, more inclusive, more effective. And learning how to be in that, I would say, nuance or tension of creating like a direction or drive, understanding how we need to get to a deadline, and yet also orchestrating the information, the, in, the engagement, the seeking out the wisdom of different people. And and I even say like sometimes the difference, like when I was running the nonprofit in Boulder, I always had a plan ahead of time and I knew who my introverts were and I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I would always send them things ahead of time. I sent everybody things ahead of time, but I made sure they got it. <laughs> and if they didn't talk a lot, I didn't try to force them into that space. After the meeting, I might be like, hey, do you want to go walk for coffee? What did you think? And so I always made sure that I found a way to meet them in their place of comfort so I could get their best participation because then we could really do the best job we were able to with all the folks who were interested and committed. But it does take a little bit of some awareness, which I feel there's a lot more just general awareness than there was when I started. And then also being willing to take that time like I think that we, one of the things we live with in the modern world is this idea we want everything to be microwave fast. And yeah. sometimes the microwave is a great way to do it. 
And sometimes you need to put it in the slow cooker and you just have to understand that being fast and immediate is not always the only or best way to achieve the results you're looking to achieve. Yes. So if I went back in time a little bit to one of the first questions you asked me, and it was describing a traditional notion of leadership that I often see espoused when I go into organizations and then how that compares to the changes that we would coach for, right? I think in a traditional style of leadership, there was probably a little more just focus on authority and the hierarchy, like I mentioned. But also I think there was more of an emphasis on the product and the efficiency. So all the things that you're talking about. And we know now that it's not just the end product. We have to focus on the process, right? And when we really focus on that process, we are actually enhancing our ability to supersede any end result we thought we were going to have because we have a fully engaged workforce, not to mention turnover will decrease likely. So there's cost benefit savings there. People are more effective. It's a way of slowing down to speed up. Yeah. Now, it, and I, I will say that my experience bears that out. I ran a small grassroots nonprofit and the anticipated turnover for staff there is about 12 to 18 months. And my people all stayed three to five years. And the things that we were able to do because we had community partnerships and relationships and we knew each other and didn't have to rehire and retrain every 12 months. Right. It was amazing. And at the same time, it wasn't the traditional approach. There was always a lot of education around that with staff and board and volunteers. And this is the, this is that container, which like you said, it's interesting to see the assumptions that people can run into in terms of, and once again, it just goes back to that, like the feeling of people care and they're afraid if they aren't like, controlling it in that somehow something is going to get lost. And that does happen, right? There has to be a lot of structures. And that's why people like you exist, because then you can help folks transition an organization into that model, or you can help them to identify, and I'm making this up, but you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, (laughs) but you can help them to identify, oh, okay, here's a place where you might want to have an extra check or balance to make sure that you don't lose important information or you don't lose track of a deadline because we definitely made it up and there are some things i learned through the process of failure which is a great teacher growth mindset right fail forward all of that yeah the reason that i started my business was because i realized that i had a knack for this sort of spidey sense for looking at organizational culture and i would take a job somewhere and just immediately perceive imbalances in power tension, disconnect. And there's nothing unique, again, about the social sector, the nonprofit sector. I think this happens everywhere. But in the nonprofit sector in particular, in the social sector, we really pride ourselves. We do a great job of talking to talk. We are so inclusive. And we always have work to do, but we're so inclusive. And to be honest, a lot of the organizations that I've seen, I don't know if we're always living up to those ideals. And in part, it's probably because of the enormous pressure that nonprofits are under, right? Senior administrators are looking at budget and fundraising constant. It's a constant pressure to retain funding, to get new funding. 
And then we're also just constantly pivoting to the needs of our communities. And that's a pleasant way of saying entire program models shift fairly regularly in mm-hmm. our sector, right? There's a lot of change management that has to happen. And change, man- change management is hard. It's not easy, right? So I started to realize, like, I actually have a thing for this. And I know how to do it well. And I'm seeing it done well. I've been taught to do it well. And then I'm also seeing it not done well. And I always want to fix those problems. I want to put out those fires. And I realized that if I could just bottle this, we could really transform the sector. We could do a better job of living by those ideals. And I don't think it's for lack of trying. I think a lot of times folks simply don't know how to operationalize the theory. So you've been to many trainings in your life, I'm sure. We've all had this experience. You're in a great training. You're like, this is so engaging. I have my post-it notes all over the place. And then six months later, what has changed? Often, not much. Right. So for me, that's when I was like, I need to do something about this. I really need to start this company. I actually was at, I had some folks asking me to come do consulting. So it fell into my lap. And then I I was like, no, I'm really, God, I'm so passionate about this because I know it's that win, win, win. When we Mm -hmm. do this well, staff feel better, but the agency and the client's community benefit, right? There's no downside to this, except it can take a little more time. And it does require us to have some more training and slow down and really be intentional, first and foremost, about those relationships. Mm -hmm. Trust, 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 hearing people out, checking our judgment calls, right? When we're too quick to judge, when we have those snap judgments, and really just focusing on the relationship building as the core. And I know when we're looking at the metrics and we've got to get here, we've got to spend that down and it's hard to do, but it pays off in the long run. I'm on board with that. I learned it by trying it. And at this, and I was resistant. I'll be honest. I was, it took me a minute. But once I saw what could be achieved, it was 100% in. I want to get through. I have a couple more questions. And so one, real quick, what's the best advice that you've ever received or given or both? The best advice I've ever received personally, I have someone I consider a mentor in my life. I was weighing out a career move and this person said to me, isn't it better to regret something you've done than something you haven't done? So Mm -hmm. like how that relates to my work and my clients, I, I talk to people oftentimes when they are really stressed out, like they're a little bit at their wit's end. A better place to work in general on the core of our website, right? Our mission is to create engaged, inclusive, and high-performing workplaces. And we drive impacts to the ground up. So people are coming to me because they are experiencing high tension, high conflict. Their workplace is not inclusive. It's not high-performing. There's lots of stuff going wrong. Terms like wheels aren't coming off the bus, right? right? Things like that. That's when I'm really called in. And... That's where it's so wonderful for me because we see immediate impact. And if it helps people along the way to say, listen, what do you have to lose? At this point, even if you're hesitant, like I want to know for you, what were you saying? You tried some of these out. It was a little hard. You were hesitant. I want to know why were you hesitant? Because how can we help people push through that? But one thing is like a little CBT here. Wouldn't you rather regret having done it than having done nothing? Because we already know how it's working. So if we continue to do the same thing and expect a different result, maybe that's not so realistic. I always thought that was great advice. 
That's really great advice. Also, I'm just going to honor the fact that you were able to take it because people give great advice all the time. And that doesn't mean that you're going to take an action. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. What do you do to keep yourself inspired when it gets hard to believe in your dream? How do you recharge? Anyone who started a business before can probably relate to this. God, it can be so scary. And there's moments where you're like, do I have enough business that's going to come in? How can I plan for the future? Or there's just so much to do and it can feel really overwhelming. For me, I am fully engaged when I'm actively coaching, actively training. Just last week, I was giving a training on Friday morning and I knew there were some skeptics in the room. There were like a hundred something people in the training. I knew I have a contract with this organization. I knew there were folks in senior positions that were really skeptical of the methods. And at the end of the training, folks were staged. Chat was blowing up, tons of ideas, tons of thoughts. At the end of the training, a lot of those people stayed on and were like, this was so wonderful. And what's next? And I could tell that it really resonated. So for me, it's like seeing the small wins and like they can be really small, but I get fully engaged when I'm in working with a client directly, those face-to-face meetings, a training, coaching call, and I see the synapses forming and we can get through some of the blocks. That's when I'm like, that just lights me up. I'll do that for free. I'll do that forever. I can't do it for free, unfortunately, forever. I need to live. I'm so engaged. It doesn't even feel like work. That's the point. When I started my business, I my goal was to work with people that I would work for free, even exactly. if I needed to take money because we live in a capitalist society. What does success look like to you? Oh, my gosh. In terms of my business, I certainly have metrics, right? Things that I'm trying to achieve by certain milestones, really so I can continue to improve the business and reinvest in it, all of those things. But for me, as I just said, like, it's the little successes. So what gets me out of bed in the morning is a conversation I'm going to have with a client or I get to do this training and gosh, I part of this work. So employee engagement is like this big set of theories, right? How do we operationalize it? What Mm. does that actually mean? What do you do? So things are tense at work. So you have a supervisee that's really argumentative or not following through and you feel he's being, quote, insubordinate, right? What's that about? And folks get so challenged in these moments. For me, it's okay, let's try on some new things and let's understand the theory behind it and why we're doing it so we do it with intention. And when people, when you see that light bulb go off, right, and people are like, oh, it doesn't have to be the black or the white. We live in the gray. I can still be kind and confident and have a boundary and hold someone accountable for achieving something. And at the same time, really say tough stuff in a kind way, right? Like it's all those things together. You don't have to be a doormat and you don't have to be a bully. There's a way to say really hard things in a way that engages someone because they see that you're being transparent and kind as you can be. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, those are the goals for me is to like have have an impact. I would love to transform the sector and work myself out of a job. We're all leading from this mindset. We don't need Catherine anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'd love that for you. I'm guessing it probably will take a little more time. I think you got at least five years of possible business. And so 
to that end for folks for listening and they're like, oh, I want you to talk to my boss, my board, my executive director, my best friend who has a company because I think that they could really use this kind of support. What's the best way for folks to track you down, get involved, pay attention, learn from what you're up to? Yeah, so they can just go to my website, which is a abetterplacetowork.org. And, and or they can shoot me an email, which is Catherine at a better place to work. I'm a real human and I respond to all of it. So always happy to connect with people, which is not always a guarantee. That's great. Thank you so much I for know. your time today. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful.